Uh, Why don't you turn back to that passage that was read to us by Beth a few minutes ago, Luke chapter 16. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. And as you're turning there, let me uh, lead us in prayer. Our Father, your Son, following his death and resurrection as he walked that road to Emmaus, he said to those he walked with how foolish you are and slow to believe all the prophets had spoken. And he appealed to Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, about the things that were said concerning himself. So we know that what we look at today, tonight, is an account about him. Indeed, as we do that, reflecting on even the Old Testament and the New Testament, that these are the scriptures that testify about him. So we pray, let us hear the truth about him now and respond, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, uh, after a long time, uh, watched The Lord of the Rings with my kids recently. Some of you hate this, these kind of illustrations. I know, but it's fine. Uh, I like to introduce my kids to great stories and bad acting all at the same time. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Lord of the Rings is basically a Tolkien story, a fantasy about this unlikely group of characters working together to destroy this ring that holds a very strange and malevolent power. Uh, The ring falls into different hands at different times, but basically whoever has the ring is captivated by it. The ring is precious to whoever has it. Every ring bearer calls it that. And the ring specifically is master of whoever has it. It exerts a very strange control over them. While they possess it, really, it possesses them. And what they call precious is in fact pernicious. It's dangerous for them to have it in their possession. And for people in this world, even people like us, The same can be said in relation to money. Money can master those who treasure it or who value it too highly. It ensnares people in the delusion of self-sufficiency. It swindles people into the belief that God is unnecessary. And people say, I know friends of mine who say things like this, I'm comfy, I'm okay. Or as long as the mortgage payments are made and I get to drive a nice car and have a couple of holidays a year, one overseas, one in Scotland, all's well. But the truth that we've been looking at in God's word over recent weeks says it's not. Like these Pharisees here, the religious leaders of the day in our passage, my friends, your friends, this city, this world needs warned about the dangers of loving money. Which is why I think this passage that Dan preached on last week and this passage that we're looking at tonight should have probably a big black uh, box around it. You know like the kind that you get on cigarette packaging? I'm pretty sure you're not smoking. It's bad for you. But you've seen this in the shops. 
There was a big black, I mean, no longer do they have nice pictures of sunsets or camels or anything like that on cigarette packets. And you've got these black boxes and stark warnings in bold. Warning, smoking kills. You know, they're the kind of things that say, that, that get you facing up to something now so that you'll change your life in regard to, to avoid what could be disastrous and horrible in the future. Well, this warning that we have in this passage here is as stark as that label. The love of money is both detestable and dangerous. It's detestable to God and dangerous to those who love it. And those will be my two points tonight. Let's not forget where we are in Luke's gospel, though. Context is crucial for understanding everything that's in this section. From chapter 13, verse 22 all the way through to chapter 17, verse 10, the topic that we're looking at is salvation. Why are some saved and some not? Uh, how does God act when sinners turn to him? And why do some who should be first to believe, like these Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, not repent, not turn and believe in Jesus for themselves? And then let's not forget the immediate context. This passage we're looking at tonight comes straight after the parable of the shrewd manager that Dan led us through last week, in which Jesus teaches us to use money not, uh, to use money not as your king, but for the kingdom. Now, verse 14, harking back to that teaching, that parable, shows us how these eavesdropping religious leaders responded. And this is my first point. The love of money is detestable. That's verses 14 to 18. Now, verse 14 tells us that they love money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Now, those two things are connected, the loving and the sneering. Think about it. Whenever we, uh, when something we love or value highly is devalued or diminished, uh, we react. We feel personally devalued, and when we feel personally devalued, often we can't quite contain ourselves. Sometimes we argue, uh, sometimes we scoff. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're sneering. They are scoffing at this ridiculous teacher with this ridiculous teaching. Use your money, that hard-earned money. The money that really counts, in our view, is a, a sense of God's blessing on a person. You want us to use that for the kingdom and to spend money in ways that bring other people into this. Have you ever heard anything like it? You can imagine them scoffing. Well, that's the kind of thing that you would say if money is at the same time your treasure and your master. So how are we responding to this hard-hitting uh, teaching on money? I mean, even Dan's sermon last week, the passage we looked at last week was convicting. We may not scoff out loud at the prospect of being encouraged to use our money to win friends into the kingdom of God. But if we did nothing, maybe we still love money a little too much. Maybe we find ways to excuse ourselves from obeying the instruction of the Lord. Pharisees were good at that. And how exactly did they do it? This passage tells us, verse 15 tells us, that they justify themselves. So the Pharisees excuse themselves from the selfless sacrifice that God calls for 
by regarding their own standards as the standards to live by, their own standards as being higher than God's. So when Jesus says, look with me, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. He's exposing the fact that they condone, in this case, the love of money by looking to each other rather than to God. In other words, they're living according to the man-made allowances and standards of their cronies, the other Pharisees. But that's crazy. It's actually the kind of thing that a child would do with their siblings. You know, my kids do this. You ask the question, what? They've done something wrong. You say, why did you do that? What's often the first response? Well, they did it. And what do, they, what do you think I'm actually going to say in that situation? Say, oh, okay, if your brother or your sister did it, then that makes it absolutely fine. Yeah, go on, on you go, it's fine. No, we never actually say that. That's crazy. Just as the parents institute and maintain the standard of behavior in the home, the Lord is the one who institutes and maintains his standards in all things. He's the Lord of all things. And no one can justify themselves by according to someone else's standards or someone else's behavior. It doesn't work that way. And that's why Jesus says to these Pharisees in the hearing of his disciples and the people around him that God knows their hearts and actually detests what they value highly. That's money. We saw that in verse 14. He sees right through them. They can't hide behind a veneer of righteousness. None of their clothing covers it. And God hates what they love. What a striking thing to hear. God hates what they love. And he hates how it makes them care very little about what he cares about the lost, and his glory. So what does Jesus do? What does he command them to do in the light of this love of money and this justification of themselves by themselves? Well, he tells them to read their Bible. They need the word of God. That's what verses 16 to 18 remind us of. Verse 16 tells us the law and the prophets are preached. So the appeal really is just listen. Listen to them. Verse 16, the good news of the kingdom is proclaimed by the law and the prophets and by John. Now, the law and the prophets, that term is really just shorthand summary for the Old Testament, okay? The law is the first five books of the Bible. Generally, you've got wisdom and the prophets uh, as two other divisions, uh, the writings and the prophets of two other divisions of the rest of the Old Testament, but often it was just condensed into law, prophets, all of the Old Testament. And the John, of course, that Jesus has in mind here is John the Baptist. We read about him earlier in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 3. Now, John is seen really as the last of the Old Testament prophets, the one who heralded the coming of the king. Now, both the Old Testament scriptures and John the Baptist are basically testifying about two things. One, about Jesus himself, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world by his substitutionary death, and two, about the Pharisees and about everyone else and the necessity of repentance and readiness. So the Pharisees who by their own manipulation and interpretation of the scriptures, not to mention their 
overt rejection of John justify themselves, but are in fact condemned by both. They are the bad shepherds of Ezekiel, if you want a prophet testimony. They are the brood of vipers, by John's estimation. But they, like the sinners they despise, who humbly are coming to Jesus in their filth and in full awareness of their sinfulness and their neediness before him, they too, these religious hypocrites, lovers of money, can heed the warning of Jesus, can in fact heed the warning of the Old Testament scriptures and respond in faith and repentance. And the, you can see the appeal in this. This is an urgent appeal from Jesus. That's what verse 16 is about. It's a verse clearly that is difficult to translate. It says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed through John since that time. The good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. Now, that doesn't seem to be the case. It doesn't seem to be the case that everyone is forcing their way into the kingdom at the time that Jesus says this. Indeed, the very question that starts this whole section off by Luke is prompted by seemingly low numbers of people believing. Are only a few going to be saved, you read in chapter 13? Now, this verse could be translated in a way where the force is in the proclamation of not the entrance to the kingdom, which tells us that the Old Testament and John the Baptizer have proclaimed with urgency the need for people to repent and believe and enter into God's salvation. And now that the one they testified about is here, Jesus Christ himself, that call is all the more urgent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus declared. Repent and believe the good news. And the reliability of the testimony of this word of God as reinforced by Jesus is found for us in this example in verses 17 and 18, in which effectively we see that the law and the prophets haven't changed. They haven't changed, so the Pharisees should just repent. They should listen to the word of God and they should obey it. Now, verse 17 says the Pharisees have no reason to be confident in justifying themselves by others Instead, they can only do that as they measure themselves up with God's standard in the Old Testament, in the scriptures that they have at that time. But that wouldn't go well for them. You can't justify yourself as you look in the mirror of God's word. The law served as a mirror showing and convicting. Jesus actually says it still does. And what he says here is that actually none of that has changed. The word of God is still a mirror that can be looked into by you Pharisees who love money. And you can't look into it and justify yourself. You know what they were doing, don't you? They were excusing themselves from the standards of the law based on what they kind of agreed. Shall we just drop this little bit out of the law? How about we interpret it this particular way? That seems like a very good idea. I'm scot-free. Wife, divorced. Hey, new wife, that's, basically, that's a very, that's not exactly how it happens, but an example of how they were trying to manipulate the law in a way to suit their own sin. So that's why Jesus actually uses this example of divorce. He's not using the example of divorce in order to teach on this matter 
and warn of the dangers of adultery per se. He is doing that as he teaches on it. There's other parts of Scripture that we can look to uh, where there is fuller teaching on the matter of marriage and divorce and adultery. But Jesus instead is using this example to show that those who love money and justify themselves become very lax when it comes to the kinds of laws that they might think, that's a bit too strict. I think I really wish that law wasn't in there. It's really getting in the way of the way I want to live. But no instruction or command of God's word is relaxed just because you or your pals say so. It's just not the case. And in fact, it never will be. Not even a stroke of one of those letters that makes up a word in any one of those laws will pass away. It's easier for heavenly and earthly realities to dissolve than for that to be true. So how does this apply to us today? Well, ultimately, for those of us who already know and love the Lord Jesus and for whom Christ is a far better love, we read this and we conclude Jesus saves people from the love of money and the folly of self-justification. Therefore, we really should be those who preach the gospel with a great sense of urgency. Like, we're not captivated by money, are we? Surely we've come to the point already, having already chosen Christ as Savior and Lord, as the treasure of all treasures, have come to realize that he's worth selling everything for in order to follow, if that's what it takes. Therefore, we should be unhindered in our proclamation of the gospel as individuals, as a church, using all the resources that God has given us, time, stuff, money, as we looked at last week. But what it also teaches us is that we should be unafraid to use God's word as we do so. Christ's call for these People who love money and justify themselves by themselves was basically to say, go back to the Bible and read it and listen to it. Truly hear it and do what it says. And then you'll find entry to the kingdom of heaven through Jesus because these, he is the one the scriptures testify to. Maybe you're here tonight and you, you cannot say that Jesus is the one you love the most in this life. Perhaps you love money and highly value the things that God hates. That may or may not be a concern to you. If it is not a concern for you, you need to realize that this passage says that the love of money is detestable to God as is every means of trying to justify ourselves. I wonder if you say the kind of things I've heard my friend say, I, I, I don't think I need this rescuer that you keep talking about. I don't think I need saved from the sins. I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. And often the question that can be asked in response is, yeah, okay, on what basis are you judging that? By your own standard of righteousness? I mean, we can't even keep up to the standards that we set ourselves. Whether it's religious or non-religious people, 
both are prone to self-justification, finding a way to excuse bad behavior and condone whatever behavior we want to condone on the basis of our own standards that we set. And then that becomes the platform on which we either look up to those who are better than us or mainly look down on those who are worse than us. But appealing to other people's standards is like kids justifying bad behavior by their brothers or sisters. My encouragement for you is to read the Bible, and I wonder if you have. There were so many times before I became a Christian where somebody would, if somebody had said something to me about Jesus, especially in that six months when I was thinking about Christianity, before I actually became a Christian, at the start of that time, I would be rejecting it in all kinds of ways. No, that can't be, for all kinds of reasons. And then I remember somebody asking me, have you actually read any of the Bible yourself? Uh, No, I hadn't. Now, that's just silly. You can't reject what you haven't at least intellectually and seriously with integrity engaged with. So if you haven't read the Bible, I'd love to give you a little section of one. I'll give you one. There's Mark's Gospels over here. Come down to the Connect Corner afterwards. You don't even have to chat to anyone there if you want to, except to say, if you can't find the Mark's Gospel, just say, can I have one? And we'd be happy to give you that to take away. Better still, if somebody sits down and reads it with you, it's really helpful to have somebody explain it to you. My encouragement for you is to do this. Because as you read God's Word, it is a mirror through which you see, in which you see yourself but it is also a window through which you see the Lord Jesus Christ and it'll tell you and show you great things about how you truly find righteousness before God, about how you are truly justified in his sight. Like Romans 3, 20 and 22, no one is declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law, rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who obey, no, believe. Faith is what's needed. Well, that's the first point. The love of money is detestable to God. And we should be urgent in pleading with people to enter the kingdom. And if we need any more convincing about the importance of urgently proclaiming this gospel and turning people to the Bible that proclaims this gospel, we just need to look at verses 19 to 31. A story that shows the love of money isn't just detestable to God, but dangerous to lovers of it. The the love of money is dangerous. Look with me at verses 19 to 23 and see where the love of money takes people. In verses 19 to 21, uh, these verses tell us about two men with contrasting wealth. And note that the parable is spoken from the rich man's perspective. Okay, here is a rich man who really corresponds with the Pharisees in verse 14 who love money and they, they justify themselves. Here is a rich man who is filthy rich and he represents these lovers of money. Verse 19, a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. He's telling you about his clothes because he is wearing his wealth, right? He's dressed in purple. 
like a king. There was only two ways to dye cloth purple in those days, and both were very expensive. And wearing purple for this guy was not so much a fashion statement, but a finance statement. Even his underwear was posh. That fine linen that it's talking about is an undergarment, okay? That's the Calvin Kleins of biblical times is, is what he's got on. But it not only wears his wealth, he lives in luxury every day. Now, the word that, that's used in the original language there actually refers not to just his lifestyle, but his diet. He's eaten fine diet. This is Michelin star dining every single day. It's extravagant, okay? Lazarus here, by contrast, though, verse 20, is terribly poor, and he wears his poverty, his sores. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. He had no wealth of his own. He's laid at the rich man's gate. This is what benefit system looked like back then. And what's he wearing? His sores, as I've said. And here we see Lazarus basically neglected by a man who should have been kind to him. Verse 21, Lazarus was filled with longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. By the way, that's often how dogs were fed back then. They weren't like cute little labradoodles and puppies and things like that. Uh, they, were, they basically just lived on scraps. They weren't really kept as pets. And they lived on the scraps that people threw out. So Lazarus here, as he longs for the food that falls from the rich man's table, he's basically longing for dog food. That's how poor he is. In fact, it's only the dogs that give, the dogs give Lazarus more attention than the rich man did. That's how tight-fisted he is. This man, Lazarus, has no food and he has no comfort. By the way, the dogs aren't comforting him. They're, they're basically eating his rotten flesh. It's horrible. But you get the picture. Outside of the home of a man who has everything is a man who has nothing. Actually, that's not quite true. The beggar has something that the rich man doesn't have. Did you notice what it was? A name. A name. He's called Lazarus. Lazarus, which means one whom God helps. Now, you can imagine the Pharisees in the crowd scoffing at that. <laughs> doesn't sound like God's helping them very much. And interestingly, this is the only time Jesus gives a character in a parable a name, as if to drive home the point. This poor man, by the designation of his name, is known by God. So the rich man represents the Pharisees who live in luxury and despise sinners and the unclean. The love of money is what's made this man love money and value highly what God detests, even to the point of rejecting this poor beggar at his gates. That's the two men described. But verses 22 to 23 tell us about the two deaths of these men and two destinies too. Lazarus died and was taken to heaven. That's what Abraham's side represents. The crowd gasped at that. What? Abraham's side? He's in glory. Abraham, of course, was the great patriarch of the people of God in the Old Testament. He was the poster boy for the kind of faith that God commends. The example often quoted is that's of all that's necessary for salvation, faith. Well, the Pharisees' ears must have pricked like a dog when they heard the word uh, like a, when our dog hears the word walk, you know, they were proudly children of Abraham. So they were like, Ch child, Abraham's side? Oh, they're thinking that's where they're going to be. 
But you'll notice here that there is, when Abraham's side is mentioned, there is no actual description of heaven. Now, that's not what this passage is for, really. In fact, there are other passages that tell us a little bit about that. But the main focus is that Lazarus died and he is in heaven by Abraham's sight. What about the rich man? Well, verse 23, the rich man died and found himself in Hades, the place of the dead for unbelievers. He is in torment and in agony. And you can imagine the crowd gasping even louder at this. You what? But he seems so blessed by God. This is a big shock to them. Hades, as I've said, simply is the place where unbelieving dead go while they wait the return of Jesus and final consignment to hell. Now, it's, uh, it is a real place, though. And something to be heeded. Heaven and hell are both real. Hell is for sure. Some people have these bizarre images, of course, of demons clawing at your back and barbecuing you with pitchforks or something like that. But that's not the picture the Bible presents of, of death without Jesus. It's depicted with words like agony and torment and fire, actually metaphorical for something worse than fire. And Jesus says, as if to say, this is where the love of money takes people. This rich man, for all he had in this life, here is what he has in death. But what hope is there? Well, verses 24 to 31 tell us where hope lies for lovers of money. Verse 24 to 26 tell us there's no hope after death. There is absolutely zero hope in something happening after you die that means you get to Abraham's side, to heaven. And you look with me, verses 24 to 26, we have the first of uh, two requests made by the rich man. The rich man asks Abraham for relief from his pain. First of all, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. It's astonishing that, isn't it? That even in hell, the rich man considers himself a child of Abraham. Calls him Father Abraham. And that's true to a sense, but not in faith. But worse still, he still thinks that he can use Lazarus. Which tells you that even in Hades, this man is still the same man. Remains unchanged. Lazarus has gone from being someone he's disregarded at his gate to someone he can just use now. And neither is loving. But Abraham denies the request on two counts. Verse 25, you've already received your comfort in life. Though he adds, Lazarus is comforted though. wonder how that sounded to the rich man. Uh, and I won't send him into the fire for you. Lazarus won't come to you the way you didn't come to him. Well, he doesn't put it that crassly, I guess. But it's true. As verse 26 says, you can't go from here to there or vice versa. So Abraham denies the request. There's no cooling of the agony. There's no tempering the fire. There's no going from one to the other. 
The chasm is, as Abraham says in this passage, fixed. No one can do deals after death. Death is decisive for one's eternal destiny, which is what lies behind the request, clearly the second request of the rich man. When he says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. So where is hope found? Not after you die, but in this life, in the very word of God. The rich man asks Abraham to raise and send Lazarus even. That might be a good thing to do. To his brothers, warn them about hell and insist on it. And we often think along those lines, if only God would do a miracle today, maybe my friends would actually believe what I tell them. Our friends might even say that to us. If only God would send someone back from the other side to tell us the truth, then we'd know, then I'd believe for sure. But that's not so. And Christ died and rose and testified. Many remain in unbelief. And that's exactly what Abraham envisages happening with this rich man and his brothers. But notice where Abraham's denial of the rich man's request centers on the scriptures again. Moses and the prophets, just another shorthand way of saying the law and the prophets. You see what that tells us? The rich man's brothers, the living in other words, have all the warning and encouragement they need to avoid eternal hell in the Bible. They have everything they need to know who God is, to know how to respond to him in faith and repentance, and to know how they should live their lives after that through believing the good news in the scriptures. And these are the scriptures that testify about Jesus, as he says in John 8 and in Luke 24. Indeed, based on what Christ says here, the news declared in the Bible is more certain than the testimony of a man raised from the dead. Because it's the very word of God, not, the man, not something man-made, but God-given. Ah, but people can be so in love with money and justify themselves by themselves that they are deaf to the word of God to the extent that even a resurrection from the dead won't bring about repentance. Failure to hear and heed the word of God, according to this parable, is how people end up in hell. This is the rich man's failure, and indeed the failure of the Pharisees. They had failed to listen to the word of God that they knew incredibly well, like they had memorized it. They had tassels hanging from their robes, which reminded them of various sections of scripture that they could then recite. Every time they, they saw one of these little tassels or touched one of the beads and somewhere on their clothing. These Pharisees could just recite it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and just rhyme it off. But they didn't heed it. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, yeah, I said my memory verse. They didn't do it. As was evidenced in Lazarus, begging, getting nothing, longing, and then dying. They knew God's word, but didn't know God. And if they had listened, if they knew him, they would not be scoffing at this point, they'd be repenting. They would not love money, they would love God and neighbor. And if they weren't too busy justifying themselves according to the things they value highly, they could have humbled themselves before the one who justifies them freely and lifts them up and grants them eternal joy at his right hand. So how do we apply this as we close? In exactly the same way that we did in the first point. Know this, our families, streets, city and world are full of people represented in this parable by the rich man's brothers. They're still alive. They're living and the breathing. And we can go to them with the truth of this gospel and tell them that Jesus saves people from the love of money and the love of all kind of other idolatries. And to warn them about the dangers of trying to justify themselves by their own standards. Hey, I'm going to be okay. I'm okay. God's okay. We'll be fine. If I die and there's God, I think I'll be all right because I'm a pretty good person. Pat, pat, pat. We can warn them about the folly of that. It's just not what the Bible says. Which is why we must then be urgent proclaimers of this gospel. That's why we should be radical and sacrificial in with the means that God has given us to reach as many people as possible. And again, not just at the individual level based on the money that's in your bank account or whatever, but what we do as a church in terms of our strategy, our focus, our mission. What are we going to spend our money and our time on? What do we have to say no to in order to say yes to, in order to catalyze and spread this gospel? And let's, friends, if you ever find in your evangelism you feel all right talking to people about Jesus, maybe dropping in something that sounds kind of scripture-y into the conversation, to, just enough for people to know that, oh, you're a wee bit different, aren't you? You're, you are a Christian, aren't you? And that's okay. And yet we feel this really strong reluctance to take them to the Bible or to ask the question, some of us, has anyone ever read the Bible with you? Like even one passage. If I could pick one passage and read it with you, would you let me do that with you? Just to, just to let you read it and explain it to you. I think this passage not only underlines for us the importance of warning people about their eternal fate, it, it underscores for us the confidence that we can have in the scriptures for testifying to the truth about Jesus. Let's not be scared to use it. Let's be unashamed and unapologetic to open up. Anybody who rejects this as unreliable has failed to look at the historical evidence for the reliability of these words. So let's be confident and use this word to warn people. And again, please, if you're here tonight and you don't believe in heaven or hell, if you don't believe in Jesus at all, 
That may be what you think, but the scriptures say something different. And the scriptures that you've read tonight, that we've spoken about tonight, say this, that the bed we make in this life, we sleep in forever. John Piper says, a preacher from the state said, if during our time on earth we pursue things instead of God, luxury for ourselves over love for others, then earth will be the extent of our heaven and eternity will be our hell. But if during your time on earth you make God your treasure and put your trust in Jesus, then earth will be the extent of your hell and eternity will be your heaven. Which would you rather have? Hear the word of God, of Moses and the prophets, of Jesus and the apostles, of the scriptures, by letting us read it to you, letting us read it with you, and showing you the glorious things that we who do believe have come to know and see for ourselves, that Christ died for sinners like us and rose again to give us life eternal. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you have graciously given us your word that it's God-breathed, it's from you, that you, though you used men to write the words, it is indeed your revelation to us. And through it, we can know you, we can see ourselves, we understand our world and its problems, and we see Christ and the great solution that you have for us in redemption and salvation. And we pray that you would help each and every one of us who believe to be those who dig deeper into your words and who love it and who heed it. And please, Lord, to help us put it into practice so that we might warn many, many people who love things and stuff other than you and to encourage them to repent and to turn to you in faith. Please stir our hearts to be obedient to your word. Let us be those who hold forth your word like a light in a dark place and testify to the truth about Jesus using this word everywhere we go. For the glory of your name, through the salvation of many, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to close, we're going to stand and sing a song that recounts for us this gospel story of how these scriptures testify about the Lord Jesus Christ and how those who are saved through faith in him become the carriers of this gospel to the world. Let's stand and let's sing.